Welcome to our next lecture in Western Civilization 1. Today we're going to be covering the period of time leading up to the collapse of the Roman Empire. Uh, traditionally, it is considered that the Roman Empire ends at the advent of Julius Caesar to being emperor. Uh, obviously, he has a very short-lived empire, but then his successor, Caesar Augustus, has a very long, prosperous, and stable reign. So we're covering those years that lead up to that and the collapse of the empire, or excuse me, of the republic and why it collapsed. So to do that, let me look at a guy named Cato the Elder, or otherwise known as Marcus Porcius Cato. He was born in 234 and died in 149. Cato is sort of held up as the defender of traditional Roman values. He spent a lot of time studying the simple life of the early Roman farmers and celebrating their virtues. And he was a huge enemy of Greek culture and the Greek influence, uh, which he believed was uh, very corrupting. Uh, he himself served as consul in 195. Uh, he also served as censor in 184 and campaigned against what he saw as moral laxity in the Senate, uh, weeding out those that he thought unworthy of office. So he had a very powerful position there. And he really got rid of those who uh, showed off their wealth and those who were straying from what he considered the traditional Roman values. Um, he was obsessed with the luxury uh, and grandeur of Carthage and Greece. He hated them. Uh, and remember, Cato is the one that ended every speech with Carthago or Delenda est Carthago, or Carthago Delenda est. Uh, Carthage must be destroyed. He celebrated the honesty, simplicity, and frugality of uh, the traditional Roman farmer. Um, and he really despised those who enriched themselves after the conquests uh, and also took on the culture of the conquered peoples um, and got away from what he saw as the traditional Roman values. He, in order to prove his point, um, in order to try to be authentically old-school Roman, would work in his field side-by-side side with his slaves. Um, he opposed senators who encouraged uh, further conquests to benefit their trade ventures Though he had the wealth, he refused to drink expensive wine, uh, but drank cheap wine on campaigns, and boasted of his own personal frugality. Um, he opposed strongly Greek philosophy. So he was a conservative, but Cato also reveals some contradictions. So, for example, um, it was Cato's practice to sell old slaves to avoid taking care of them in his old age. This is something that a classic paterfamilias of old would never have done. He would have treated that slave like family and taken care of him up until his death. Um, he himself made an awful lot of money in trade and the trade that resulted from conquest. And he used Greek authors to condemn Greek culture. Uh, so he shows a certain level of ambivalence. Remember, the word ambivalence means mixed feelings. Um, and he's typical of the era. So Cato reveals for us the um, concern about what was happening to Rome in his day. And remember, this is going on all during the years of the Punic Wars. Um, talk for a minute about Roman genius. 
Rome was brilliant at several things that made them very effective, very stable, very powerful. One was authoritarianism. They had, they ruled with a very firm hand. Um, obviously, crucifixion is maybe the best example of their firm hand, but they could be firm in other ways. Second, they were very good at um, being creative in adapting to new situations. Remember their invention of the Corvus uh, when they were building their navy, the little swinging bridge that allowed them to uh, employ their shock forces, their, uh, their soldier techniques in sea battle. Uh, they were flexible. Uh, they could bend and change and adapt as situations warranted. Um, they were thorough. Think about how thoroughly built their roads were and how much their roads have lasted. <clears throat> and finally, as I said, they were willing to give those who they conquered a stake in the empire. Well, as we indicated before, all this began to change after the conquest and destruction of Rome. Roman leaders were unwilling to broaden the base of those that could participate in Roman achievement. And so in many ways, Rome was no longer extending citizenship, but they were extending their power. Um, and maybe one of the better symbols of this is... Um, that as Rome grew, they grew in luxury and opulence. Um, in fact, the one of the sort of uh, cultural practices that they took on from the Greeks was the cult of Dionysus, which Dionysus was, among other things, a god of wine. And so in the worship of Dionysus, these were basically religious drinking parties. People would uh, drink themselves uh, extremely drunk. Um and engage in uh, sensual pleasure of all kinds. Uh, and this was sort of seen as a premier example of one of the decadent elements in, um, in Greek culture. And it was a concern to many that these values were being celebrated and the old Roman values were not being celebrated anymore. Uh, so this illustrates, again, the saying I mentioned in class, that the Romans conquered Greece, and then Greek con culture conquered Rome. Um, and so the question becomes, how do you sustain an empire built on traditional values in a world that is increasingly rejecting those values? Uh, in a world where you're looking for luxury, wealth, and uh, pleasure. Uh, so what Hellenism brings to the Romans, or at least what many Romans felt like it brought, was wealth um, and extreme wealth, like wealth on display, luxury, no longer living frugally and simply, but living with la lush food, wonderful houses, uh, very comfortable life, and individualism. People devoted more to their own personal pursuits than the solidarity of the family. In other words, this individualism is cutting against that virtue of devotion to the family that Aeneas so powerfully exemplifies. Um, so all of this is what represents Greek culture. And just keep in mind, anything Eastern, anything Greek, anything non-Roman by tradition is, um, is looked on with suspicion. 
So, as I said, the Carthaginian and Macedonian wars that went on from roughly 250 to 150 enriched one class of patricians. Um, These were a group of about 300 senators and regional magistrates, people that led in the conquered provinces. These were guys with lots of land, lots of political experience, and lots of social ties who were able to emerge as the most powerful in Rome at the time. Um, there was a new class of wealthy um, wealthy merchants and cavalry who called themselves equites or equites. Um, these guys ruled in the re- in the outlying conquered regions through bureaucracy, um, and they were very powerful and influential. In addition to that, you had this vast um, tax-collecting apparatus led by individuals called publicans. Um, you'll maybe remember that in the King James of the New Testament, of the New Testament, Jesus is um, criticized for eating with publicans and sinners. So a publican was a tax collector, sort of like an IRS agent today, except a tax collector who is corrupt. And typically what these tax collectors would do is they took taxes for Rome, which were tough, but they also took bribes and um, gouged or sort of squeezed local populations for more money and lined their own pockets. And so they were especially hated and hated all the more if, for example, in um, Israel or in the, the region of Israel, they were Jewish. So maybe the most uh, famous example in the Bible is Matthew. He was a publican. He collected taxes for Rome, so he was a traitor. He lined his own pockets, so he was corrupt. Um, he couldn't have been more disdained, probably, by the other disciples, and yet Jesus chose him to be a part of the, the Twelve. Um So you have a situation where power is increasingly in a fewer number of hands and a fewer number of families. So by the end of the Punic Wars, there are only about 25 families that you could expect to produce a consul. Uh, So power in Rome was, again, getting in fewer and fewer hands. There are four groups that suffered as a result of this. Um, those, Those regions that were conquered, Um, they no longer got the share that other regions had usually gotten in power. Um, People who lived in the provinces usually were gouged by exorbitant taxes and corrupt gouging. Um, The old allies at home, those that had been conquered or incorporated into Rome years and years ago and had done so much for the empire, uh, they now suffered uh, severe taxes and less participation in government. Uh, the old citizen farmer is another group that suffered. Um, those those traditional uh, laborers that were the economic base, they were had the rights of citizens and they farmed. Maybe they had shop. They were shopkeepers. These groups all got very frustrated with this new situation where they were more and more cut out of power. And during the years from about 150 to Julius Caesar's. Uh, revolt or founding of the empire, these groups resorted to violence more and more. Um, Another issue that uh, led to a lot of tension and chaos in Rome during this time is slavery. I think we've discussed before that slavery in Rome was not necessarily based on race, 
Um, but if you were conquered, you were eligible to be a slave. So there were Jewish slaves, there were African slaves, there were um, slaves from Gaul, uh, slaves of every um, culture. Uh, but Italy was flooded with slaves during this time. So around 150 BC, there's something like one third of the population of the Italian peninsula that are slaves. That's about two million. Um, and this really changes the role of slavery in Roman life. They are less and less a part of the family. They are more and more considered chattel. You can dispense of them in the gladiatorial ring, if you wish, for entertainment. Um, and so it's a really um, it's a really bad time to be a slave. It's always bad to be a slave, but this is especially bad. If you were ever a slave in Rome, you wanted to be one in the early days when you were more part of the family. So in 135, a group of slaves revolted. Uh, this, this revolt eventually numbered about 200 slaves. And then um, another revolt took place between 74 and 71. Uh, and this was a gladiator revolt. And you might think, well, a gladiator revolt uh, stood more of a chance of winning. Uh, this is famously led by the gladiator Spartacus. And eventually there were about 100,000 slaves who participated in this. Um, unfortunately, they did not uh, win, it, but it did take eight legions of Roman soldiers to put this revolt down. That's more soldiers than met Hannibal at the Battle of Zama in the Second Punic War. Um, and just keep in mind that a legion's about 5,000 to 6,000 men. All right, So this is an enormous uh, force that had to put down this revolt. Slave revolts are typically always doomed to fail because they can fight singly, but fighting on a large scale was not something that they were trained at. So they just couldn't um, stand a chance against advanced Roman forces. Um, after the Spartacus Revolt, the Romans crucified the slaves and lined the road from Rome to Naples. That's about 120 miles with something like 6,000 slaves. The whole way was lined with crucified slaves that were left there to rot. Um, this should give you an idea of the authoritarian nature of Rome, the thorough nature of Rome, uh, what crucifix crucifixion signified. This is what we do to those who try to overthrow us. Um, so this is sort of the situation. Lots and lots of revolts by people who are more and more disgruntled by their treatment uh, that is not like the way Rome used to treat their allies and those they conquered. Um, so this leads to, in Rome, there is an increasing amount of social tension. There's an increasing amount of class conflict. Um, so you have guys uh, like Tiberius Gracchus, that's G-R-A-C-C-H-U-S, um, who did things like introduce plans for redistributing land. In other words, when land was conquered or when there was large amounts of uh, land owned by individuals, he said the government should take it and redistribute it. Um, and he becomes quite popular, obviously, among certain classes. Um, these, these, so there's an increasing political movement that appeals to the masses, to the poorer classes, to those who are less and less a part of the inside elite part of the government. 
they wanted to limit the amount of, of land that a private citizen could hold. Um, and for obvious reasons, the Senate opposed it because the Senate was the class that had a lot of land and had a lot of power. Um, so Gracchus, instead of appealing to the Senate, appealed to the Assembly. And the rural poor, the, the poor that lived in the cities, flocked to the vote and really rallied behind him. Um, Gracchus is also important because he overturns tradition to get his measures through. Um, he started breaking the Constitution by getting reelected to the Assembly more times than the Constitution allowed. Um, eventually his supporters are murdered in the assembly and this ushers in a new era of political violence when uh, various political factions uh, attack and assassinate one another. Um, well, he is assassinated and murdered, but his brothers initiates a similar program. Um, and he said, listen, the, the Senate is outmoded. We need to shift the primary power of Rome to the assembly. He and some 3,000 of his followers were killed. So this is a time of lots of turmoil, lots of violence. Um, and it's really class warfare, fighting between the rich and poor. And nothing was really settling the problem. Um, so now we get to movement towards um, the empire. There's a guy named Marius, M-A-R-I-U-S, who is elected to the consulship um, many times in a row. Five times he's elected to the consulship between 104 and 100. This is in violation of the Constitution. Um, Marius, uh, therefore, is serving the consulship. He's in the field in Africa with the army, creating more affinity with the army. And he does things like ignore property qualifications for army service. This is because he's giving uh, poorer people the right to be in the army. Uh, he um, enlists these poor people in the army at public expense. Uh, so he's creating these close bonds with the army. Uh, and he insists that his veterans get land after they retire. Well, the Senate refused this. Um, and so he can say, hey, look, the Senate doesn't love you. I love you, and I want to give you land when you retire. And so he creates deeper and deeper loyalty to himself. Eventually, in the late Republic, you have a situation where the armies of Rome became less Republican armies, that is, armies that belonged to the people, and more and more armies that belonged to these leaders, like Marius. Um, there are revolts in Italy, and uh, Marius and a guy named Sulla, S-U-L-L-A, um, work together to put down these revolts. And at the end, Sulla and Marius are looking at one another and uh, realizing that they each want power. They each are hungry for power. And there's a civil war between these two um, where Sulla emerges as victorious and rules as an extended dictator. Right? He's ruling militarily over a longer period of time from 82 to 79. Um and so, again, you can imagine there's lots of reaction against this. They did not extend the consulship or extend the dictatorship um, gladly. There is a lot of uh, resentment about this. So perhaps most famously, the Roman orator Marcus Tullius Cicero, C-I-C-E-R-O, uh, born 104, died 43, 
He is like Cato before him, an advocate of the old ways. Um, he's also ambivalent because he has a lot of the newer values. But uh, Cicero is a very skilled orator. And um, he championed popular causes while protecting the interest of the wealthy. Uh, so he, he's sort of trying to skirt or navigate between the Scylla and Charybdis of the Senate and the Assembly. Um, he is, uh, served as consul in 63 BC. Now, the real danger to the Constitution came, though, in the person of Pompey, uh, or maybe I should say the persons of Pompey, Crassus, and Caesar. These are all military leaders um, who had their own armies that were loyal to them as they were participating in conquests. Pompey uh, was given uh, sort of military rule over the whole Mediterranean, um, where he was suppressing various revolts. Um, he, after successfully leading a lot of military campaigns, returns to the Senate and expects the Senate to give his veterans land, and they won't do it. So he conspires with Crassus and Caesar to create what is known as the first triumvirate. Triumvirate is a compound word that means three-man. Um, this is the first sort of leadership of Rome under three generals who each have personal armies. Um, so they conspire together. Pompey, um, these guys, and their their army and their power based in the army were the real threats to the Constitution. Um, they organized a compromise, uh, and Caesar was... Um, they basically break up the empire uh, in regions and rule those regions. Caesar was consul in 59, but he is given command of Cisalpine Gaul. That means Gaul on the other side of the Alps, basically modern-day France. Um, he builds his military career there, and the army um, is very devoted to him. Um, he is a military genius, and he's very dedicated to his troops, so he's very popular. Um, Crassus and Pompey thought they were being very shrewd by this because they thought they're burying him in the, front, in the obscurity of the frontier. Um, how, excuse me. However, Crassus dies in 53, leading the army in his army in Syria, and so that just leaves Pompey, who um, is very suspicious of Caesar, the only competitor to power. Um, and so he gets the Senate, his allies in the Senate, to remove Caesar from power. They say, Caesar, we're retiring you. You're done. You need to come home and relinquish the army. In 49 BC, this is a very famous scene in uh, Roman history, Caesar is standing at the Rubicon with his army, and he, um, he is trying to decide, well, do I violate the Constitution by bringing an army into Rome? Because I know if I go by myself, they're going to kill me. Uh, and so there at the Rubicon River, uh, he, he says the die is cast. Ilia octa est. Uh, he, he says, look, um, I've made my choice and I'm following it. Uh, thereafter, anybody who made a very momentous decision uh, said, well, I've crossed my Rubicon. I've, I've, you know, I've made a decision that I can't turn back on. Um, and so in 49, he crosses the Rubicon. In 48, he defeats uh, Pompey. And they're in battle. And thereafter, Pompey is assassinated in Greece. And by 45, Caesar has defeated all 
other enemies and is basically the sole military ruler of Rome. Um, and he does a number of things after this, after he establishes himself. He enlarges the Senate. That means he adds more senators who are loyal to him. He widens its representation. Um, and so in 44, he is declared, now here we finally have it, perpetual dictator. Well, as is obvious, uh, this is not popular by many old school conservative types in the Senate. So Brutus, Cassius, and 58 other diehard Republican senators plotted to have him assassinated. Uh, this is the famous scene uh, that you'll read about uh, that Julius, or excuse me, that Shakespeare dramatizes. Um, on the day he's on his way to the Senate, he's assassinated. It's on the Ides of March, that is, on the, uh, on the 15th of March. Uh, in Shakespeare, you have the famous, the seer, the, the sort of witch lady saying, beware the Ides of March, all right, because that's when he is assassinated. Um, and this assassination, these guys thought they were well-meaning, or they were well-meaning, I suppose, but it leads to years of instability and civil war. Uh, during the civil war, there's new armies, new army leaders that emerge. Um, those three leaders are Mark Antony, Marcus Lepidus, and Octavian, and they form the second triumvirate. Now, again, you have to keep in mind that a triumvirate is kind of... It's three guys who really would like to kill one another and take over, but for now they make an alliance to put down revolts and bring stability, but eventually they hope to take over themselves. So they form the second triumvirate. Uh, during the resulting purges, many of these Republicans that participated in the assassination are killed. Cicero is killed, the opponent of all of these things. Um, and um, Antony and Octavian together defeat Cassius and Brutus at Philippi, same Philippi that's from the Bible, in 42. And now the triumvirate <coughs> is looking at one another and going, okay, we've defeated all our enemies, we've defeated Brutus and Cassius, the ringleaders, now what? So they divide up the empire once again. Antony took the east, and this is going to be his downfall. He um, is going to protect Asia Minor and and uh, basically uh, Egypt. Uh, Lepidus is given Africa, and Octavian is left behind in Italy, which is fatal because he can uh, work with the Senate and maybe manipulate the Senate. So Lepidus is forced into retirement because his troops won't fight against a Caesar. Uh, by the way, I forgot to mention that Caesar is the adopted nephew of Julius Caesar. Octavian is the adopted nephew of Julius Caesar. So Lepidus' forces won't fight against him, so they're loyal to Caesar. Uh, and now Antony is all that remains of the triumvirate. And unfortunately for Antony, his undoing was a woman. Uh, Antony began an affair with Cleopatra VII. This is the most famous Cleopatra who um, was, I mean, she's an Eastern woman, right? She's symbolic of everything that Rome doesn't trust, a woman, number one, and number two, a woman from the East, from the corrupt, mysterious, bizarre East. Uh, Antony and Cleopatra have a child, um, 
And so Octavian is able to use the situation back in Rome and say, look at Anthony. He's a traitor to Rome. He's embracing non-Roman values. He's under the thumb of an Eastern woman. Uh, and uh, something needs to be done. And so he is able to sway sentiment in Rome and in the Senate against uh, Antony. And there's a, there's a, a warring that ensues. And uh, Antony and Cleopatra are defeated in 31 BC at the Sea Battle of Actium. Both Antony and Cleopatra commit suicide. Uh, Cleopatra famously by uh, letting snakes bite her, asps. Um, And this is more or less the solidifying of the empire um, and the ascension of as sole ruler to the throne of Octavian. Uh, and we will, in our next lecture, visit Octavian and discuss the years of peace and stability that, are, that emerge because of him. Um, this is called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Uh, and as I said, it is a major, major turning point in Roman history. So we will discuss that in the next lecture.